Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. Houston is not an unusual place for devastating hurricanes, but in the era of climate change disaster, Harvey hit the state like no other. In just six days, 33 trillion gallons of water were dumped onto the area, the greatest amount of rain for a single storm in continental U.S. history, with three times more rain than Katrina. The catastrophic flooding destroyed thousands of homes and left many areas of Houston in ruins. But these homes all have something in common. Like the devastated neighborhood I visited in Northeast Houston, low-income, black and Latino residential areas are what is known as fence-line communities, or those in the highest risk borders of flooding and pollution. To learn more, I talked to an expert on fence-line communities, Dr. Robert Bullard, distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University. Well, if you look at, you know, Houston is uh, uh, a petrol uh, capital, and it uh, has lots of uh, industries, and many of the communities that are near the refineries and petrochemical plants along the ship channel uh, many of them are also in areas that uh, that that's prone to flood, and uh, and so you get this you know people who are uh, living in areas that's affordable, uh, areas that uh, are because of residential segregation, because of housing discrimination, uh, in many cases people are are uh, forced to live in areas that um, that are risky and uh, and very vulnerable, uh, not just to uh, 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 st storms like Harvey or these monster uh, hurricanes, but also just with um, with downpours. Harvey was different; is that it spread the pain. You know, it 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 kind of like uh, democratized uh, the 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 suffering. Uh, but but yet still, you know, when you look at it, the communities that that uh, have uh, few resources and and few uh, uh, bank accounts that can allow them them to bounce back quickly. These that's how it's, it, it's hit them the hardest, because uh, they don't have uh, the cushion to, to, to make them uh, more resilient. Right. The recovery certainly was not democratized, Professor, as we know. Let's talk about how urban planning and gentrification has exacerbated these fence-line communities and vulnerable communities. Well, you know, the Houston uh, is a city that, that, in many cases, defies logic in terms of where things get built and how they get built and and the whole idea of where investments go. Uh, we have sparkling downtown areas. We have beautiful uh, urban complexes that's of high rises, but at the same time we have areas that are uh, semi-rural, areas that have very little infrastructure in terms of drainage, um, in terms of flood control. The areas that that have um, have basically open ditches and and gullies and no sidewalks and kids have to walk along the, you know, the the, the street uh, next to ditches to get to school. And when it rains, uh, those gullies and ditches fill. Presents a lot of problems in terms of of safety, health and safety for children. Well, you know, Houston is the only major city in the United States that does not have zoning, and it has allowed for really willy-nilly, haphazard uh, kinds of development. Uh, and because of that. Uh, unrestrained capitalism. It means that if you have the money, you can almost build anything anywhere. And so uh, that that kind of of uh, less protection for 
poor communities and communities of color and not having the kinds of uh, investments in infrastructure uh, such as flood control has made many communities uh, uh, basically um, uh, sacrifice zones. And so when you start looking at uh, laying a map out on the table and talking about which communities are over polluted uh, by industry and air pollution and, and water contamination, which communities have open drainage ditches and which communities are more likely to have illegal dumping or waste. I mean, these are the same communities that, that uh, are low-lying and, and generally uh, uh, poor and have, have um, an infrastructure that's older and, and not maintained. And most of this is on the east side of Houston. In Houston, Houston's east side is heavy industrial, uh, heavy concentration of, of African-American and Latinos. And so when you talk about, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that schism between these two Houstons that we're talking about, the west side is, is more residential and it's more upscale. And then you talk about on the, on the east side is where you have a lot of these industries and, and these neighborhoods that are, that are fence line. And, and oftentimes people call them sacrifice zones and areas that where, where anything goes and, and these are the same areas that don't have grocery stores. These are where you have concentration of food deserts. These are the neighborhoods where you don't have a lot of parks and green space. And so when you talk about things that communities don't have, what we're saying is that if we are to recover in a way that's equitable, we have to address a lot of those uh, disparities that existed before the storm. The areas that suffered most from the hurricane are Houston's historically oppressed and marginalized communities. In many cases, the people that live closest to the industries don't even get the benefits of working at the industry. They get the pollution and, and, and they get the risk and many times they get sick. Uh, that's the environmental racism is when we allow uh, certain types of, of risk and health threats to, to, to somehow be targeted toward groups and communities because of their race. It's real. Uh, we live, as I say, we live in, in areas uh, in the South and in Houston, and Houston is definitely a Southern city, uh, that many of its, its neighborhoods and its, um, its um, environmental landscape was shaped by Jim Crow segregation, racial segregation. And if you look at, as I said before, we have, in 2017, we still have uh, racially identifiable, identifiable neighborhoods uh, that, uh, that we know by name, and we know when you travel through, you know by when you see the population. You see certain things are not there, uh, and you can identify in terms of amenities. Uh, what happened in terms of, of uh, the infrastructure and the flooding of certain neighborhoods and the disparate impact of the flooding, that's not natural. You know, that's an unnatural disaster. The, po the political dynamics involved in pushing people toward risk and not allowing certain communities to, to, to have the benefits of, of infrastructure improvements, uh, that's not natural. That's unnatural. Racism is unnatural. It doesn't make sense. Uh, it's an illness. It's a it becomes a mental health issue. But it's not just poor residential areas that were treated so inhumanely. An even more marginalized sector is treated with similar heartless disregard. I talked to Azura Crispino, co-founder of PAPS, Prison Abolition Prisoner Support, to find out what happened to Houston's incarcerated population. So let's start by discussing what you know about the damage done to those three prison units run by the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. So in terms of the GIST, Styles and LeBlanc unit, we know that there was standing water in all three of the units. We know that there was lack of sanitation available to the inmates. 
They weren't able to shower for a minimum of 10 days. When porta potties were finally delivered, they were insufficient porta potties. In at least one of the units, the porta potties were clumped together in such a way that it was not accessible to all of the inmates to be able to go there. We have widespread reports that only the guards were allowed to use the porta potties. Um, so men are obviously having to make do in terms of sanitation however they can. So you mentioned the evacuees. What happened to them? We know from an activist who went to visit inmates in Ferguson unit that more than 500 men were evacuated to this unit. They were placed in a gymnasium. They were told to bring their fans but no other property. When they got to the gymnasium, they were not allowed to plug in their fans, right? So no air conditioning, no ability to plug in your fan. There are porta potties, but the porta potties are not being cleaned. Ants, roaches, and snakes crossing them at night. No ability to go anywhere or do anything except to be in this gymnasium. So you have a situation where a federal government agency, right, has recognized that this is a coastal floodplain that is likely to flood anytime, right? If I lived there, I would have to carry additional flood insurance. But TDCJ does not have an evacuation plan in place that is constitutional, humane, and respects the taxpayer. Well, that's, that's the big question, right? I mean, you mentioned that these, these prisons were built on a known floodplain. And I guess you can ask that about all these facilities in Houston. Why were there no precautionary measures taken knowing that this is going to happen, not just now, but again and again? Because prisons are built for profit, not rehabilitation. And it's cheaper to build on a floodplain, right? The reality is that we have this fiction that prisoners are people who have done something wrong and they're being punished for a reason. And the reality is that prisons are a huge profit-making industry. So if you were to put these units in non-floodplain areas, that's real estate that's substantially more expensive. But it's much more than flood water that earns Houston's low-income areas the title sacrifice zones. The mega corporations that siphon vast wealth from Texas land puts them in even graver danger. On the poor, mostly minority east side of Houston, you'll find big oil refineries, which emit countless harmful pollutants. You'll also find all the chemical plants, which emit even more toxic emissions, littering the residential areas hurt by the floods. This gets even more disturbing when you see it's not just homes, but also schools. Countless children go to schools built inside of these poison-spewing zones. When hurricanes strike these facilities, it's the east side communities who bear the brunt of the toxic fallout. Hurricane Harvey was no exception. Behind me is the Arkema chemical plant, the facility that exploded one month ago during Hurricane Harvey. Innumerable noxious polluting chemicals were released into the air, endangering thousands of local residents, some of whom live directly next to the plant. They were told to return home, but to wear protective clothing and to not drink the water. So we're driving by the Arkema chemical plant right now where water was about six feet deep in the plant. Um, they said it was an unprecedented amount of flooding, but as we know, uh, they had experienced something very similar just a few years prior and actually failed to take those precautionary measures to prevent more explosions. So right across from the plant, there's people, there's houses, there's trailers, um, hundreds of people who live here who have to return back to their home. Many of them have farms, um, you know, they have lives to live. Holy, there was just a huge dead deer 
in the gutter. Wow. That was really intense. I spoke with Yvette Ariano of Houston's grassroots Texas Environmental Advocacy Services to learn more. So can you start by outlining what exactly happened at the Arkema chemical plant back in August? Well, in August, uh, Arkema basically lost their, their backup energy source and they had a total of nine different refrigerated units. Um, the first three went up on a Thursday and Friday uh, of that week and nobody even knew. The community had no idea that a fire was bound to happen. The plant knew because they were inundated with six feet of water. The next day, all of a sudden you had notices that Arkema was having any issues. People were trying to find out what was the volume of substances that were being held. All we were told was that there were organic peroxides, but not the amount and not any other chemicals. Any plant like Arkema, that is a chemical plant, will produce more than just organic peroxides. But because they hide behind homeland security and terrorist threats, they're not forced to disclose that information to local communities, which is completely unfair. All of a sudden you had uh, FEMA come out and say, well, we have plume modules, and our plume modules disclose that these are hazardous chemicals to public health and safety. The next day after he made that statement, he rescinded that statement because of pressures that came from above. We're under Scott Pruitt's EPA. When we spoke directly to the EPA a week after Harvey had passed, during this entire Arkema situation, we asked, are the plumes hazardous? This is Region 6 EPA under Scott Pruitt. And they said no. Your response to, you know, the whole, it's nothing more than a campfire, right? The smoke inhalation and also just their warning to the community about returning. That was, that was absurd. The community wasn't given the information that they needed, just like none of the communities during the Harvey disaster were. Uh, we were told that no flood waters were toxic because of industrial entities during the storm. And this had happened before, about 10 years prior, at the Arkema chemical plant. Not six feet of water, but at least six inches of water. Um, why were no precautionary measures taken then? Well, all of this stems back to the chemical disaster rule. The chemical disaster rule outlines that these facilities that are called RMP facilities or risk management plant facilities have to be transparent with communities and outline evacuation plans and let communities know what they're storing. Under the Trump administration, there was a 90-day delay. That 90-day delay kept any of those safety mechanisms from going into place. After the 90-day delay, everyone was very hopeful that the mechanisms would go into place, and all of a sudden, we were slapped with a 20-month delay. That was, that was beyond belief. We're talking about common-sense policies that protect our communities. And of course, they're not going to be in favor of it, because then they'd not only lose revenue, but they would have to put in safety mechanisms, and that costs money. But still, I mean, it seems like such a measly amount of money when the owner is a multimillionaire, and we're really just talking about putting these bins or vats up on stilts. There is no enforcement. Under uh, the TCQ, which is the Texas Commission of Environmental Quality, their head is basically appointed by Governor Greg Abbott, or whoever the governor is at the time. A governor who sued the EPA over 28 times, a governor who is a climate denier, 
a governor who receives a ridiculous amount of money from oil and gas and petrochemical industry in general. So when you have that amount of influence, you're going to protect your best interest, which in that situation is money. And I think the part that shocked at least me the most was, was that we're at a point of this high stage capitalism where CEOs of chemical plants can just sit back how many years after Fukushima and say, we're just going to sit back and watch this explode because we can't do anything else. That's insane. Any single time that there is a chemical fire along the ship channel, first responders are never fully trained on how to deal with chemical fires. And they're told to allow anything, any substance it is. And most of the time, they have no idea what's even burning. We, ha we still have no idea what burned at Arkema. There is no information that's come out. The information that, that was relayed to the community is old. It's outdated. None, none of it's up to date. It's not just Arkema. It's Exxon. It's multiple other petrochemical big oil companies that basically dominate the state, Yvette. And Exxon also had refineries damaged during, during Hurricane Harvey and released massive amounts of pollutants in the air. I mean, can you give us a, just kind of a, a general assessment of what kind of pollution was emitted from these companies during the hurricane? Right behind you is a running list of just the amount of emissions that we were able to track. And we stopped at 5 million in excess pounds of fugitive emissions that were let off into the communities affected by Harvey. Three days after the storm, we took an aerial tour all the way from the east side of Houston to Port Arthur and not only saw Shell Deer Park Terminal, ExxonMobil, uh, Chevron, and the Motiva plant. The Motiva plant in Port Arthur is the largest refinery in this nation. ExxonMobil plant is the second largest refinery in this nation, and they both produce over 500,000 barrels per calendar day. They were flaring like crazy, and no one was there to stop them because there are loopholes hidden within our regulations. Currently, our regulations and any policies that are there to protect our community stand like Swiss cheese. The lowest fine that we've seen for any of these companies has been around $2,500 for doing air releases. Now, I can't even buy a used car for that amount of money. It's cheaper for these companies to pay the fines than it is to actually update the equipment. The companies are allowed to do any number of things. They're not fined if, if any of these events happen during a natural disaster or during startup and shutdown. What was told to the community was that these refineries and the chemical plants were going to go through a shutdown process. They weren't told how many emissions they were going to let off. In fact, you had public officials just kindly reminding these entities, please be considerate as you're starting up and you're shutting down. When you have public officials asking kindly these entities to please be considerate, that means there is absolutely nothing else. They are not enforcing. When you're asking politely, you have no power in that situation. That's what we were facing. 
This is the largest petrochemical complex in the entire nation, the second largest in the world. The first largest is in Saudi Arabia. You're telling me that a first world nation, a developed nation who lives in a democratic society allows a 16 mile stretch of frontline communities with children, elderly, sick, cancer clusters running from Houston all the way to Louisiana. You're telling me that this is what's allowed in this kind of nation, in this kind of society? Houston's open secret is that these same communities are subjected to deadly hazards from these big corporations every single day, not just during natural disasters. The correlation is clear. Areas with very low poverty rates have very low rates of harmful emissions. The higher the poverty rate, the greater the rate of dangerous pollutants. Cancer clusters, which are heightened rates of deadly cancer in these polluted areas, prove how many lives are sacrificed for big oil, how many are sentenced to sickness. According to a 2016 report by the Union of Concerned Scientists, the Manchester community, 98% minority and mostly low income, experiences cancer at 30% greater than those in more wealthy areas. 19 industrial oil and chemical facilities dot this small community. So not only were the families along the Houston Ship Channel affected by any current leaks or fires or emissions, but legacy contamination that continues to sit at these sites. When we asked Texas A&M to come in and do testing, when they got to the Brio site over in the south side of Houston, there was an attorney at the Superfund site manually who was physically attempting to stop them from taking a water sample they had a community department liaison with them who used their body as a barricade. This is, these are wild stories that people have no idea even exist. And whenever we go ahead and we, we recount them, they sound like lies. They're not lies. This is what happens in states that are infiltrated with oil and gas infrastructure, extractive, their extractive industries. Everyone is affected. Everyone in Houston sits under a benzene plume. Houston has never even met the federal air quality standards since the Clean Air Act's establishment. Let's talk about how this all happened. Let's talk about urban planning. Let's talk about gentrification and how basically this concrete jungle was built on a swamp and how that's affected this. This entire area wasn't meant to be inhabited by people in general. Uh, most of the bayous, this, Houston is nicknamed the Bayou City, but most of our natural waterways and bayous were covered in order for development to even start. The communities of Manchester, of Clinton Park, of the Fifth Ward have always been predominantly communities of color. The Houston Ship Channel was originally only 10 feet wide, 4 feet deep, and it wasn't until oil and gas infrastructure started coming in after the, the discovery of oil in Corsicana and Spindletop, Texas in 1901. What Houston saw was throughout Goose Creek and the Houston Ship Channel, hundreds and just hundreds uh, of oil derricks and pumps just coming straight out of the ground. So from 1901 to 1906, you have oil and gas just infiltrate the entire area. We didn't export any of this. Originally, it was cotton. It's the South. So the communities that also outlined the, the Houston Ship Channel were going to be your historically black communities. Slavery, cotton, the exportation of cotton, historically black neighborhoods, the same ones who continue to have to pay the price except now you also have communities that are majority immigrant communities or Latino communities 
and you can look down the Houston Ship Channel and see this legacy continue. You have the east side and the west side. On the east side, you have every single refinery worker job, every just worker job, every refinery, any oil infrastructure is going to be there. On the west side of town, you have the densest population for the headquarters of these energy firms. You have BP America sitting on the west side of Houston in their high towers. You have an entire section of Houston called the Energy Corridor. You have the densest amount of headquarters sitting right in downtown, and they're all sitting there with nothing to fear. And, and you're going to get a lot of resistance, obviously, in a petrochemical big oil town where people are working in the industry. We saw the same thing with the BP oil spill. It seems like there's so much resistance. As you mentioned, these are entrenched red states with climate denial public officials. What can be done to get environmental justice here? We're the only entity down here in this city basically advocating for environmental justice. It's difficult, just like you said. You have an education system that STEM programs, science and math, are, are completely funded by oil and gas interests, where teachers get reprimanded if they talk too long about climate change, where the future of students lies in maritime programs, where they don't necessarily get advanced math or science skills. They get taught how to work a tractor or a pipe there is no study that even has chemical exposures and their effects on public health available. You just won't see that. Why? Because you have hospitals in the medical center with wings that are funded by Kinder Morgan, with wings that are funded by ExxonMobil and Shell, and it's not going to happen. Our local universities, as much as you have kind-hearted souls working there, their departments are held at the behest of oil and gas because as soon as they have any real studies, they'll lose funding. What we do is try to uplift the narrative and the stories, and we try to advocate. And then we get down to the main issue, which is the people who are being sacrificed are the most powerless in the situation. The people who are being sacrificed are also those who don't, who, who lack the influence with public officials. We don't have the amount of PACs or money to basically sway the vote. We live in the deep red South, an extremely racist area in this entire nation. We're not in a post-racial society. We are poor and we're affected and no one cares. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.